All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Tom Secker. He is a private researcher who runs spyculture.com. And here he's got this great piece at shadowproof.com. Documents reveal how Pentagon shaped Top Gun Maverick into a recruitment and PR vehicle. And, you know, there's a companion piece to this, too. Uh, by a guy named Roger Stahl in the L.A. Times that references uh, Tom and, and his uh, great work here as well that you can read. It's called uh, Op-Ed. Why does the Pentagon give a helping hand to films like Top Gun? Uh, welcome to the show, Tom. How are you doing? Welcome back, I should say. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Scott. It's great to be talking with you again. Uh, good to have you on. All right, so I'm going to start off by fighting with you in the name of other people's fair opinions uh, why you got to ruin this movie for me i like flying <laughs> I, I like fighter jets and then you got all these whiners coming and whining about how you take the fighter jet movie and it's all some kind of bad war propaganda sure it is i already have people saying that on twitter and the thing is i have to admit i'm a little bit sympathetic because i was completely brainwashed by the first top gun when i was 10 years old and in fact, I was remembering as I was watching the bootleg of the new Top Gun off the Pirate Bay this morning, or finishing it up there, that um, what happened was I actually gave up Star Wars for a little while and switched to G.I. Joe because they had an F-14 Tomcat. It was awesome. And uh, yeah, Tomcats are cool with the variable wings and all that. And this is actually part of why I supported Iraq War One when I was in ninth grade was because... Fighter bombers, man, explosions and missiles and not really dogfights, but potentially dogfights, right? And excitement. I like stuff like that. And Hollywood helps me to enjoy stuff like that. So how come you're ruining this movie for us all, jerk? Um, I'd argue I'm not the one ruining this movie. It's the Pentagon who ruined this movie. I'm not the one turning these films into war propaganda. I'm just the one kind of most prominently pointing out that they are war propaganda, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Um, my aim here, certainly, I, I take your point, I get this a lot. My aim is not to ruin people's enjoyment of movies, not at all. Um, I kind of enjoyed, like you, I watched the bootleg, I didn't pay to watch this movie. Um, I kind of enjoyed it just as a movie. I'm not saying it's like a bad, unentertaining film that you shouldn't watch. If people want to watch it, go watch it. Or you know, preferably download it for free. But um, my issue here is that it's not so much with the movies. It's that because governments do so many terrible things and because the movies are helping them do these things and helping either promote or rationalize or give these little psychological justifications for all of this sort of thing. And that's what the Pentagon and other government agencies are in Hollywood to do. That's the problem I have. If the government wasn't doing terrible things, then the movies wouldn't matter and I wouldn't care one jot what was in them or wasn't in them. The issue here is 
the warfare state, the security state. It's the destruction. It's the environmental destruction. It's the destruction of people's lives. It's the suffering. It's the violation of people's rights. If all of those things weren't going on, then a Top Gun movie wouldn't matter and people could go and watch it and watch the planes run around and go womb and fine. I'd have no issue with it at all. Um, but because those things are happening, it makes this movie something more than just a fun movie about some aircraft zooming around and some pilots saying some quippy things. You know what I mean? Yeah, and listen, I mean, is it even necessary for the Israeli foreign ministry to participate in this? Or just everybody knows that Iran's not allowed to have a uranium enrichment program. No mention of whether they had to pull out the IAEA inspectors from their safeguarded facilities before they bombed them in this movie, you know? No, no. I mean, that was one of the fun things about it is in all of these briefings. Um, and since you mentioned Star Wars, did you notice just how much they ripped off Star Wars The Force Awakens in Top Gun Maverick? Which is, um, yeah, one of the most horrible movies ever, too. Why would you copy that? <laughs> well, fan service. That's how you do a soft reboot and make a billion dollars, I guess. But um, but yeah, where they say, yeah. and the target is only three meters wide. You got to use proton torpedoes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's even a bit where Son of Goose has like a, a, you know, Luke turning off his targeting computer moment and he says, you know, talk to me, dad. And he's having this Obi-Wan oh, Kenobi right, yeah, the force Luke moment. And then he re-engages and flies really fast. And, you know. Thank God um, for me. I never pay that close of attention to these things, man. Or it would drive me crazy. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, I was amused throughout this whole film by just how much it was a ripoff of The Force Awakens, which itself is a ripoff of A New Hope. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in, in these briefings, they're talking about how this uranium enrichment facility has been built in, in violation of some NATO multilateral treaty. And I'm thinking NATO doesn't do multilateral treaties on uranium enrichment plants. That's not what NATO does. They're kind of trying to paint them as like either the IAEA or the UN or the OPCW or one of these more... I mean, I guess none of those organizations actually have great reputations, to be honest. Right. But they're trying to make NATO seem more like that, more like some kind of international, I don't know, diplomatic or peacekeeping organization. <laughs> you know, the, the images that these project of themselves, they're trying to sort of stick NATO into that part. Right. That's not what NATO is at all. And I have a feeling that's partly the whole NATO versus the rogue nation. I guess that's to try and tie in somewhat with what's going on in Ukraine, because they're caught between russia and nato they're caught in the crossfire between those two and i guess that's where they were going with that but i can't be sure because of course none of that was actually going on when the film was being shot so i have to wonder did they do some additional dialogue to stick an extra line in i mean was nato in the original script nato doesn't get mentioned much in movie scripts that's why it was it struck me you know it stood out to me because you just hardly ever hear about them that's a good question of whether they decided to splice that in you know this year um, although I could see them saying, you know, they got to come up with an organization anybody's ever heard of. You know what I mean? They're not going to say the IAEA. What the hell is that? So, you know, it's yeah, that, no one it's that lazy, it's you know. Yeah. 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 Anyway, here's the real uh, lead we're burying here is you got your hands on all these documents showing the real, in fact, secret history of the Pentagon's role in developing this sequel over the last 35 years or is that right? Well, kind of, yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of those questions, isn't it? Why, when almost every popular movie of the 1980s got a rushed, not particularly great sequel, either in the late 80s or early 90s, why did we never get a Top Gun 2 at that point? It was an absolute smash commercially. It was an enormously successful film, the original. And the answer, <clears throat> the answer basically is they were 
making one. They had one in development in the late 80s and into the 90s, and the Pentagon were initially on board. But then there was the tailhook scandal, which for anyone who's unfamiliar with that, was the tailhook conference in, I think it was 1991. A whole bunch of Marine and Navy pilots attended this conference. And over the conference weekend at a hotel in Las Vegas, they assaulted, sexually assaulted dozens and dozens of people, men and women, mostly women. And when this hit the news, um, it obviously caused quite a controversy. It got a lot of criticism towards the Navy and the Marine Corps. And the Inspector General report, when they did an investigation, flagged up the film Top Gun and this whole boozing and womanizing culture within the Navy as being partly to blame for this. They even said at one point there was a Top Gun mentality at play here. And so when Bruckheimer and the rest went to the Navy shortly after this and said, yeah, yeah, we're now putting, you know, Top Gun 2 into production, the Navy said, nope, nope, we're not doing this. We don't want to remind people of Tailhook. We don't want anything that looks like Tailhook. And we don't want to, you know, touch this, basically. And so the film died. It's actually because of the Pentagon that we never got a Top Gun 2 in the 1990s. And the thing kind of sat on the shelf for about 20 years. No one was really touching it. And then in 2012, they revived it. Um, that's when they first actually approached the military, was I think in the summer of 2012. That's what the documents show. They actually had discussions with them 10 years ago about this movie. That's where it all started. And obviously at that point, the military were like, well, no one remembers Tailhook anymore, so... Yeah, we're, we're, you know, turn on the afterburners. We're in on this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, there's been this somewhat on-off in the first few years, but in the last, from about 2015 to 2019, when the movie was in pre-production and development and into production, the military were involved at every point. They're having meetings to discuss the overall storyline. They had the writer and the producers go on embarks on Navy ships and talk to Top Gun instructors and commanding officers and all sorts in order to develop their character arcs within the movie. That's what it actually says in the documents that like they're basing the characters on people that they meet. Um, and obviously these are the people that the Pentagon puts up for them to meet. They're the, uh, right. I guess, brushed aluminium versions. They're the very media friendly versions, the sort that Hollywood would like. They're not going to put up the guy who's you know got a bit of a drinking problem and swears a lot and doesn't have particularly high opinions of women. They're not going to introduce them to them, are they? Yeah. Um, they're they're going to find the nice ones, the ones that present very well. And then even after all of this, um, and and the you know the reports say for about a year after these. these tours and this all of these introductions and things that they went on they said you know script is still being revised in response to all of this access that they had then the military reviewed the script the dod and the navy reviewed it and asked for some changes to the characterization it's not specific about exactly what those changes are but if you see the movie you can probably guess um and even after that when they signed the contract in i think it was 2018 the contract allowed the navy to in their words, review the script's thematics and weave in key talking points. So even though they'd been working on this movie at that point for about three and a half years, they were still like, no, no, we still want to continuously review this script in production and and weave in our ideas and little bits of dialogue that we want. They had someone on set providing dialogue throughout the filming. They had tons of influence and input on this film. Yeah, it's amazing. And the thing is, you know, part of it is just, What's not in there at all would be any kind of remark on the dysfunction of the Navy or the corruption or the any kind of thing at all. You know, all those things are just omitted. Uh, yeah, I read a thing that was probably by you. I don't know. Somebody along the same lines as your work here that wrote about Forrest Gump 
Now, Forrest Gump originally had a lot of anti-war stuff in it. And then it ends mm -hmm. up that it's actually like, nah, it's one of the most kind of um, sterile takes on Vietnam that you could see in the movies, you know, in a sense, I don't know, Tropic Thunder or something. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, well, that was meant to be that way. But you know what I did? I mean, like, it was just, um, you know, Bubba's heroic sacrifice and whatever, but there was none of that kind of jaded stuff that you got from Hamburger Hill or, you know, anything like that. They took all of that out, and it was due to the cooperation of the government, of the military, in making the movie. You have to take all this anti-war stuff out. So all those, you know, insightful things that Tom Hanks would have said, they're like, well, and that's when I figured out that this whole war was just for Bell Helicopter or whatever the line was. <laughs> All that was just not in there, you know? Uh, and so, yeah. anyway, it's the seen and the unseen, as uh, the libertarians like to emphasize, you know what I mean? It's not just um, the propaganda that they put in there, like, wow, what a great American flag on his jacket that he has while he's riding his motorcycle in the sunset and whatever, you know what I mean? But it's also just all the things that could have been in there if the writers had not been extorted into making it the most sterile kind of take. Yeah. No, sure, sure. There's no hint of corruption. There's no sexism or racism. There's no criminality within the ranks. There's no one assaulting each other. There's, there's no one who's evidently suffering from serious mental health problems. I mean, the only thing that they even touch on in that is that Maverick is suffering to some extent from survivor guilt over Goose's death in the original film, but that's kind of just resolved. Right. <laughs> it's not really explained why or how. It's just, you know, he goes to talk to Iceman, he talks to the good-looking woman behind the bar, and he figures it out, and then that's fine. And it's like, that's not how mental health problems work, for one thing. And for another, the, the suffering of both people within the ranks, and veterans especially, mm from mental health issues is enormous and it's something that these films they just skate around or they avoid completely and on the, the odd occasion they actually touch on it or deal with it they always paint the military as as dealing with the problem it's like oh no no we've got all these mechanisms set up now and the va and you know we've got mental health specialists on staff and blah 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 right. and it's like you, you talk to people who've actually been in the military and they'll tell you yeah okay that might happen 1% of the time that someone actually gets decent treatment for this. But for the most part, it's either terrible treatment or it's nothing. Yeah. And so I think it's hit or you know, miss by facility, been, you know? Yeah. 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 All but, of these sorts of things, yeah. they could have incorporated something out of this big gamut of pro yeah. problems within the military institutions. They could have put something of that in there. And maybe it was in there in some of the earlier drafts and got scooped out. I mean, this is one of the things that I found in the years and years I've been studying this is that these scripts are de-radicalized. Anything that's critical or subversive or challenges prevailing assumptions or essentially just challenges their agenda or in some way questions it or criticizes it, it just goes. It's not just that it's watered down. They, they quite often just scoop it out of there. They say, nope, you're not having that dialogue. You're not having that character. You're not having that scene. And they just take it out and it's, you know, never seen again. Mm -hmm. And that's in such a popular movie that's even more important because that's the best place to actually explore some of this stuff. You could have a character, you could have a veteran character who is more skeptical towards their experience in the military, or at least how the institutions work and how the whole political infrastructure above it works and all that kind of stuff. You know, you hear veterans talking about that all the time on independent radio. I'm sure you've had tons of people that you've talked about this. You've had tons of other people talking about this on your show. It's real. 
We all know those perspectives are out there, but you never see them in movies and TV, particularly not if they're sponsored by the military. Mm -hmm. Give me just a minute here. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but part of running the Libertarian Institute is sending out tons of books and other things to our donors. And who wants to stand in line all day at the post office? But stamps.com? Sorry, but their website is a total disaster. I couldn't spend another minute on it. But I don't have to either, because there's easyship.com. Easyship.com is like stamps.com, but their website isn't terrible. Go to scotthorton.org slash easyship. Hey, y'all, Scott here. You know, the Libertarian Institute has published a few great books. Mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, and The Great Ron Paul. Two by our executive editor, Sheldon Richman, Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And of course, No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our late great co-founder and managing editor at the Institute. Coming very soon in the new year will be the excellent Voluntarist Handbook, edited by Keith Knight a new collection of my interviews about nuclear weapons, one more collection of essays by Will Grigg, and two new books about Syria by the great William Van Wagenen and Brad Hoff and his co-author, Zachary Wingert. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash books. You know, that whole thing about the Glomar response where we can neither confirm nor deny and we won't address you and it's a secret and we refuse to show up in court and address it and all that comes from that 14 Tomcat and a torque wrench I guess it was a, a nut on a bolt, and they were supposed to have a torque wrench to torque it to the exact specifications, and they didn't have the right wrench, so everybody would always over-tighten the nut just to make sure that they didn't under-tighten it. And then that mm. ended up leading to some problems with some F-14s falling out of the sky, and these wives losing their husbands and then trying to sue over it, and then the government said, oh, yeah, no, it's a top-secret thing that's top-secret, and the Soviets would find out a thing, when really they were just covering up for their own criminal negligence. And that was where that came from in the first place, was faulty F-14 parts and dead Navy flyers. Yeah. How ironic. I didn't know that, but yeah, that's kind of astonishing, really. Because that sort of thing happens all the time. Look at the F-35, not just as an enormous waste of money, which it clearly is, but the number of pilots that have died just testing the damn thing. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, you know, that thing's barely been in any kind of combat situation. Yeah. And they, they crash, they fall out of the sky, they've had no end of problems with them that have killed pilots, they've had problems with the breathing apparatus, all sorts of stuff. It's it's ridiculous that this thing has cost, I don't, I don't know, over a trillion dollars that program has cost and it yeah. doesn't work. And people have died because of it. You know, it's serious. Why isn't this in there? In fact, the only mention of the F-35 in the entire movie was that they couldn't use it because the enemy had some kind of GPS blockers or whatever. And it's like, that's convenient, isn't it? That this yeah. massively embarrassing aircraft that's kind of a symbol of almost everything that's wrong with the Pentagon. Oh, we'll just keep that out of the film and just, no, no, stick to the F-18s, the good old trustworthy F-18s, because at least those things fly. Yeah, seriously. And I mean, in that really... The answer, right? They couldn't get enough good footage of a F-35 doing what it's supposed to do. And so they're like, well... well quite possibly, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it, yeah, it's a pretty glaring thing, right? Oh, no, the Iranians have these fifth-generation fighters, but we just have these F-18s. They're supposed to have their own Navy version of the F-35. And uh, yeah, anyway, uh, so I want to go back to the old days for a second there because, as I said, I was just 10... I don't know how old you are, but um, I was just 10 when Top Gun came out, and that was a whole lifetime to me then, but of course 10 years is a blink of an eye now, 
And looking back on it, of course, I can see that that was really only about 12 years, you know, 11, 12 years since the real end of the war in Vietnam, which is nothing. And, you know, Rambo 3, where America, all of a sudden, we are the Viet Cong helping resist against the evil imperialist invader in Afghanistan, uh, you know, served a big part of this whole kind of, um, you know, redemption from Vietnam. I think people even took Star Wars in that way, too. They're like... Well, never mind uh, Vietnam and Korea. Let's go back to World War II and our heroic fighter-bomber guys, you know, kind of attitude. Eh, I'm not so sure, but I don't think that was Lucas's intent, but I think probably some of that came through with the original Star Wars too. But this thing, just 10 years, really 10, 11 years after the end of Vietnam, this really was over my head at the time. But, but for the adults at the time, this was a real kind of redemption sort of a story sort of like rocky the great white hope or whatever we sort of just we go to the movies and and uh retell the story in a way where now it makes it okay well we just done you know kind of thing and um and this is really powerful that for that right and you have in the documents here where they talked about oh thank god that top gun came out and was really a pr miracle not just for the navy but for the entire american military and they named the Vietnam syndrome, right? That this is, it helped to get the American people over it. For that matter, probably helped to get us into the war in Iraq War One. a few years after that. I'm sure it did. Yeah, I mean, like I say, this is why these movies matter. Is because of the wars. Is because of the security state. Is the, you know, all the, the imprisoning of people. All the violations of people's privacy and property. And all the other violations that the government has you know, carries out against just ordinary innocent people all the time. If they weren't doing that, then these movies would really wouldn't matter. But because they are, they do. And yeah, that's what the document says, that the original Top Gun completed the rehabilitation of the military's image, which had been savaged by the Vietnam War, which is accurate. I'm not disputing that analysis. It's just an astonishing thing for them to have written down. But to kind of understand that statement and why it matters, um, Let me just give you a little bit of film history here. In the 50s and 60s, Hollywood was making about 20 war movies a year, 200 a decade, and the military were supporting the overwhelming majority of them. Over 95% of these were getting military support, and they were mostly about World War II. They kind of ignored Korea, and they ignored Vietnam. Um, But then in the late 60s and early 70s, you've got the rise of more independent studios, and Hollywood, you know, the industry just kind of shifted and became more diverse and more disparate and you know more independent in many ways and so you got the rise of much more critical war movies and that was a real problem for the pentagon because they were used to having these very you know anodyne relatively dull heroic world war ii movies being Mm -hmm. churned out you know two a month or something that went away and suddenly you had people like you know coppola whoever making really critical movies about vietnam and saying no, this is a gigantic screw-up. This makes no sense. The people are coming back, bringing the war with them. It's wrecking our society in various ways. It's wrecked the people that we've put through this, let alone the people on the receiving end in Vietnam. And the Pentagon rejected all of these. I mean, they tried to rewrite some of them. They tried to negotiate with some of these filmmakers, but got nowhere. And they were suddenly rejecting far more war movies than they were supporting for the first time in their history. And so then, in the 1980s, Reagan's White House, he had a Hollywood liaison called Joe Holmes, who was out in Hollywood trying to get them to make what they called more pro-hero stories, which were kind of as a counterbalance to this. They were trying to make more, you know, pro-America. No, America are the heroes still. 
kind of movies, but they were very much focused on individuals. You know, that this summer one man does whatever. Um, that sort of film. Whereas Top Gun was perhaps the first where you see all of the characters are essentially military characters. They're in a group. They're not just a set of individuals. There is a main character, but there's a whole bunch of other characters too. It's not just the story of Tom Cruise's character. And so you have a very different kind of movie. It's what I've called possibly the first post-war movie because it's kind of a war movie, but it's not reliant on combat. It's not reliant on violence and it's not reliant on victory. The story isn't dependent on those things. So it's a very pro-military movie, but there's no war. Right. So yes, it did rehab their image, which had been savaged by the Vietnam War, by presenting this entirely idealized and sanitized view of military life. And Tom Cruise said it himself a few years later when he was filming Born on the Fourth of July with Oliver Stone. He said it would be irresponsible to make a Top Gun sequel. It would be irresponsible to make Top Gun 2, 3, 4, 5, because it's presenting people with a fairy tale. Um, and then the interviewer sort of said, you do know it, it was like the first film was a massive recruiter for the military that a lot of people signed up after watching that. And Tom Cruise kind of joked, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of responsible for starting World War Three. And it's like now, I mean, what happened in between then and now? Because now he's been so enthusiastic about this new film. But you take my point that, you know, he then got involved with a very critical Vietnam War story, got to see some of the truth for himself from people who were there. You know, um, that film was written by and directed by people who were in Vietnam. So that clearly changed his perspective, at least for a little while. But in the intervening decades, obviously, the ground has shifted once more or possibly Tom Cruise wasn't being particularly honest at the time. Who knows? Um, and now he's fronting this thing again. And it's doing the exact same thing because the military's in a similar position now. There aren't that many heroic movies about the Iraq war or the Afghanistan war. There are none about Libya apart from 13 Hours, which was supported by the CIA. I don't think there are any about Syria. It turns up occasionally in the odd CIA-sponsored or military-sponsored TV show, but I don't think there's any movies about it. So it's come at the right time for them. At a time when they needed a movie like this. <laughs> I'm trying to picture it. a Syria you know, movie, you know, like all of a sudden it's the year 2014 and there's a caliphate and we got to go fight it. Come on, guys. And then they, they just don't tell the story of how the dirty war led directly to the caliphate over the preceding three and a half, four years before that. Now the whole thing was rooted in, in Iraq anyway and probably never would have happened if it yeah. wasn't for the Iraq invasion and yeah, so on and so forth. I heard Assad yeah. and Putin are the ones propping up ISIS in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be difficult to write, but it would be a really dumb and inaccurate movie. Yeah, I'll tell um, you what. But you see what I mean? There aren't really that many heroic war movies anymore. There aren't even that many war movies anymore, full stop. Oh, I bet they're working the on one about Ukraine right now where the Azov Battalion are a bunch <laughs> of moderate rebels and... <laughs> and there was no coup in 2014 and everything is awesome yeah that nothing's happened in ukraine since 1991 until the russian invasion yeah, yeah exactly right so we're sitting there eating our breakfast and all of a sudden the russians attacked us out of nowhere yeah man <laughs> it happens sometimes so you see uh, you see what i mean the, the, the new movie you could say about it it is rehabbing the military's image which has been savaged by iraq afghanistan libya syria yemen yeah. the list goes on you know, the drone program. I mean, that's a big theme, I think, in the movie. It's the, the I said this in the Shadowproof article. It's about re-veneration of pilots in the era of drones. And there's uh -huh. even a bit right at the start of the film where Ed Harris is saying to Tom Cruise, you know, you're kind of finished. You know, you're all just going to be replaced by drones. We want an aircraft that don't even need pilots anymore. 
And Tom Cruise says, well, maybe, sir, but not today. Um, which is kind of a funny line, but they've nicked it from the film Battleship, which is an awful, awful movie. So, um, <laughs> That's funny. But you see what I mean? They're very yeah. much situating this, this movie. Right, and then the rest that. of oh, no, the movie the goes... The pilot's actually cool. Yeah, you, know, exa- you won't end up wasting your life stuck in a cargo container on an air, air, air force base in Nevada killing people by remote control. It's actually a heroic and fun and exciting thing to do when it isn't. Right. Yeah, exactly. As you point out in the article, it's a huge bait and switch. They have this whole line that they use over and over again. It's not the plane, it's the pilot in order to dupe all these kids into joining the Air Force where it's the plane, all right, because you're going to be sitting in a trailer in Nevada killing somebody by remote control on the other side of the planet. No fun at all, just killing. Yeah. There's no excitement in that. You don't get a rush of adrenaline from, you know, because, I mean, let's face it, Aircraft are fun to fly. Man, I met an F-18 pilot the other day. You know, he's he's at the Libertarian National Convention. I met an F-18 pilot. Says he's anti-war now. I think him and his brother, (laughs) if I remember right, it was him and his brother, both, um, you know, kind of found our anti-war stuff and liked it. And and so I think, if I remember right, he's no longer a pilot. uh, But that was his job for the last, you know, flying sorties into Iraq over God knows how many years here. And I didn't get a chance to I mean, talk to him enough. Hey, man, if you're listening to this, email me and let's talk. But, I mean, I was only laughing because, you know, that's such a familiar story. How yeah. often do you hear that? Um, military veterans are often some of the most anti-war people you'll ever meet. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's a good thing. But, you know, it's a problem for the Pentagon. It's not just about recruitment in the first place. It's about retention. It's about keeping those people in those institutions. It's about keeping them in those jobs. Because if they aren't doing them, they have a problem. Yeah. They, you know, they don't want to send some fresh newbie with six months training off to do these things. They want experienced people. But if those experienced people are quitting because they're starting to feel guilty or they're starting to see the world in a different way or they just can't do it anymore or for, you know, whatever reason it may be, right. that's an issue for them. So a Top Gun film helps them keep those people. And obviously Maverick in this film, he's about, I don't know, 60 or something. I don't know how old You're he's right. supposed to be in this movie. Hey, someone he's should do a movie, much- Tom, where you and I start Armageddon with this interview because what happens is recruitment goes down and so they rely more on drones and autonomous systems and that's what leads to Skynet taking over and starting the nuclear war. It could be Terminator 7 or whatever they're working on now, you know? It would be Terminator 7, yes. <laughs> Couldn't be worse than uh, 4. All right. <laughs> listen, well, I got to no, go. That, uh, listen, I, I'm so late for my next interview, but thank you so much for doing the show again. I'm sorry for talking so damn much, but I love talking with you, Tom, and I love your great work. And everybody, go and listen to my previous interview of Tom about this from a couple of years ago, too. There's all kinds of gold in there. This one is at Shadow Proof. Our friend uh, Kevin Gostola and them. It's called Documents Reveal How Pentagon Shaped Top Gun Maverick into a recruitment and PR vehicle. Thanks again, Tom. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.